Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national, and international news with analysis, discussion, and debate to strengthen the anti capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And for your presenters today, we have myself, Jacob. And me, Ari. So before I'll, we'll get into the program, I would like to acknowledge that FreeCR and Green Left Radio today is being broadcast to you from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri. Um, this always was, um, always will be um, Aboriginal land, and we acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded, and that FreeCR and Green Left Radio supports the fight back of Indigenous people fighting for their for for land rights and sovereignty over the over the past um, year hundred years since colonisation began. All right, so we have a we have a pretty packed program today. We have um, we've booked quite a number of guests covering different kind of topics from responding to the whole um, to the Grace Tame kind of incident where she refused to smile after accepting the her Australian Year Award. Grace Tame is quite a prominent sort of um, feminist activist who's been a very prominent spokesperson um, against domestic violence and um, violence against women. And then we're going to be um, hearing from, we're going to be also talking, it's been 50 years since um, Bloody Sunday, um, which was uh, kind of, which was a massacre on the 30th of January uh, when British um, soldiers shot um, 26 unarmed civilians during a protest march in the Bogside area of Derry. Now, since it's been 50 years, we're going to be sort of be marking that event with a bit of an interview um, with a, um, someone who has um, written an article on Green Left for it. But I guess, um, probably, I guess probably to kind of, I guess to kind of start the program, we, we usually kind of start this program by, um, talking a bit about some of the kind of headline sort of news. Um, what has kind of like been, what has been sort of like dominating the headlines, I guess, in the past week? And maybe I'll go pass it on to Ari to sort of see, to start off, um, a discussion about it. Um, I think one of the big ones for the last couple of weeks and longer, is the the so-called UK, Ukraine crisis <clears throat> is um, the apparent threat of Russia invading Ukraine and um, all of the NATO countries, p- particularly the UK and the US, uh, making a big fuss and sending various forms of military aid either to Ukraine or the area nearby. And um, <clears throat> as a an article written by fair.org... Uh, points out there's been a very one-sided reporting on the issue so far and like while we obviously uh, would condemn any kind of invasion by Russia that's not you know an ideal outcome it's also worth noting that the um, the drive to include Ukraine in NATO in particular is for one, breaching like one of NATO's oldest treaties with Russia, and for two, is sort of a like 
active threat against Russia. And so there is some understandability, let's say, to Russia's response to that threat, even if um, the the possible solution of uh, Russia invading Ukraine is obviously not ideal. Mm. And that threat only really exists anyway because um, Putin has basically said, uh, don't add Ukraine to Russia, because that is, again, against one of the main treaties that formed NATO. Um, sorry, don't add Ukraine to NATO. Um and everybody, the the Western media is treating that like it's a totally unreasonable demand, despite, again, it being part of the treaty between NATO and Russia when NATO was formed. Yeah. Well, I, I think in one of the interest, one of the things about this particular event is obviously, you know, as socialists and as left wing people, we're not taking a side between, you know, um, between Russia and the United States, but... One of the probably one of the more interesting kind of dynamics with this, especially in terms of the United States kind of military um, committed kind of military build up um, around Ukraine, um, is there is a, there is a sort of element where you know Russia is probably in some sense a weaker partner in this. They actually have far less political weight than the United States, mm. and in fact, really a lot of um, a lot of um, Russia's motivations is actually to, in some sense, it's 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 driven by a kind of strong sense of sort of nationalism, of trying to appear like a kind of strong man, you know, mm. following the kind of fall of the kind of Soviet Union, because really Russia does not represent what it did when it was um, the Soviet Union, yeah. especially in terms of um, um, you know um, power and what it um, what it re- um, what it represents on the world stage, and it's almost like this strange kind of Cold War kind of paranoia, mm. and it's almost like trying to drive. It's almost like conflict for you know, in a sense, this conflict is very much of the fact that these um, these Western powers, um, in a sense, want to subsume. Russia, they don't want Russia to have any sort of influence, even though they're not really like, hmm. have no, necessarily that much sort of power. And so there's a lot at stake in term, um, for the United States in terms of ensuring that, um, you know, Russia does not get what it wants and that they get what they want, which is Ukraine becoming part of NATO. Yeah. Because you can sort of just imagine, I mean, I'll, in terms of like a parallel kind of situation is, you know, if Russia had sent, um, had sent soldiers across the Mexico border, um, and then they were attempting to get Mexico to align with whatever, wh- wherever Russia sort of is, is aligned with mm. in terms of like this sort of Cold War sort of paranoia kind of dynamic. They would obviously, you know, the reaction for the US would probably be far more because the United States mm. is one of the most powerful militaries in the world. Their response would almost be in some sense, almost more disproportionate <laughs> compared yeah. to what Russia, but yet Russia yeah. sort of treated as the big bad guy. That said, I want to make it clear, I don't think Russia is a good guy in this. Almost that classic sort of slogan, you know, neither Moscow nor Washington Washington is actually very much kind of appropriate here. And, because yeah. you know, you have to think about perspective is, you know, one thing that has kind of been pointed out by left-wing people in terms of this whole crisis is, you know, we're kind of living through, you know, a global pandemic. We're living through the impacts of uh, climate change. And, of course, what what are these sort of so-called world leaders that we're supposed to be looking up to um, interested in? Well, they're interested in basically asserting their own power 
over the over the world kind of capitalist system. Yeah, it's been a lot of warmongering during a global pandemic, you know, with Trump and uh, Biden as well, having this whole kind of hawkish approach to China. And now this uh, whole escalating thing with Russia and Ukraine. It's um, and like I only recently learned that one of the biggest uh, NATO that is U.S. military exercises ever conducted in Europe was conducted last year, with thirty thousand U.S. troops going to Europe during the pandemic, and like one of the highest points in the pandemic in Europe as well. So it is. It does feel very much like um, the U.S. has uh, come across insecure or something and is trying to prove uh, that we are still a giant relevant military power, which everyone already knows that. (laughs) That's the problem. Well, it's sort of interesting that you point that out, Ari, because when you look at, um, you know, when you look at the, the kind of impacts of this kind of pandemic, you know, we've all had to go through kind of periods of sort of lockdowns. We've all had to go through periods of you know, life being slowed down. But when it comes to capitalism, there are, it's almost like there's certain things that they mm. consider essential. And of course, throughout this whole pandemic, a lot of mining work has continued to yeah. persist. Um, and the same with a lot of, mil- a lot of military work has, mm. um, persisted despite, you know, despite the fact that we're yeah. in a global pandemic. Now, that, um, the warmongering and the, and imperialism hasn't actually slowed down this whole time, but everyone else has mm. been expected to slow down their lives in response to this kind of global pandemic. Yeah. It's been one of the things in terms of that, I think that we've talked about a few times on the show is that, um, there has almost been, um, I mean, it is partly business as usual in terms of the capitalist approach to things, but it has also come across in some ways as uh, something like opportunistic in the sense that because of the global pandemic, the left has generally tried to limit, um, you know, activist activism in terms of in-person like rallies and uh, actions of that sort of that that nature. And it almost feels like in some senses there's this opportunistic response from uh, the capitalist system uh, kind of at large to take advantage of uh, the left's uh, reluctance to mobilize uh, for public health measures, <laughs> for public health reasons, to uh, try and kind of... Um, I guess force these sorts of, uh, very pro-capitalist kind of positions through, uh, while there's not enough people to respond to them in the senses of what you're talking about with the mining industry and, um, <clears throat> various, uh, like supposed pandemic responses, like, uh, increasing the number of hours that, uh, international students can work and like training children in forklift operation and truck driving and stuff that's been going on in the U S which is insane, honestly. But yeah, and I guess in going back to, I guess, this whole kind of question of the US, um, you know, the, the whole US-Russian kind of conflict over Ukraine is, I guess, the, the kind of, I want to kind of make also the essential point that, you know, the amount of military buildup that mm. the kind of the United States and the lot, all the NATO powers are doing around Ukraine, it's, it's quite, there is a bit, there is like, going back to kind of my classic kind of example of Mexico, but, mm. you know, you can just imagine if, if the Russia was 
as powerful as a world empire like the United States mm. and they were expanding kind of like putting up military soldiers around the Mexico-US border and they were just surrounding kind of the United States. Mm. That's like a world that would likely not happen. And yeah. the reason why is because of the, the, the actual disproportionate level in terms of power. In fact, yeah. the United States sees itself as... Almost like that we're born to rule, essentially. We're the, mm, yeah. we're the ones that, um, need to have, we want to have hegemony over the world affairs. Everyone has to be subordinated to- towards us. Yeah. And of course, any sort, of, and so any sort of, you know, rival power, whether it's like China or kind of Russia, mm. is constantly sort of scandalized as not being. Of course, that's not saying we defend, we think that the Chinese or the Russian government's any good, but I think there is a clear kind of, disproportionate kind of power dynamic with yeah. these different nations. Yeah, and in terms of, say, the, like, sort of repeated need to defend ourselves against coming across as pro-Russia or pro-China or whatever, part of that is about this disproportionate response, I think, in a sense, in that what we're trying to do is give a balanced take on what's going on, in that most media coverage of the situation is unambiguously pro-NATO and pro-US. Hmm. And so... It is very worth pointing out that Russia's response is in large part or in noticeable part due to what amounts to NATO hostility against them. And it is, you are very right that it is very much a double standard in that any, any even perceived vague hostility toward the US results in them kind of flipping out in a sense, even if it is just Trump flipping out on Twitter or whatever or but you know that in in terms of the co- kind of quote unquote conflict with China that resulted in the trade war the quote unquote trade war and the sanctions and all these various things that were just due to China acting differently to the US like their existence as a perceived threat and so for corporate media to continue to um kind of prop up this conflict with Russia as if NATO is the only, as if NATO is the good side rather than one of two bad sides mm. in the conflict yeah. is, um, yeah, very unbalanced. Yeah. And I think in terms of the um, journalistic coverage, you mean journalism is mm. supposed to be neutral. It should be in some sense speaking truth to power. And of course, yeah, exactly. if, if you're, if it's framed through this context of evil Russia and US NATO good, mm. They're the good guys. We have to support them in their pursuit of justice. Well, it's not a pursuit of justice, really, at the yeah, end of the day. exactly. Anyway, we're getting ready for our first interview for the program. I'll just go play a quick announcement, and I guess we'll just conclude this discussion for now, but we'll definitely cover it in uh, more developments as it happens um, on, our radio, on Green Left Radio. You're listening to FreeCR 855 AM. Get your radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio Tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tea that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post. And there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our T-shirt rack during business hours. 
To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Okay, you are listening to Green Left Radio. And for our first guest of the program this week, um, we are good, we are speaking to Stuart Monkton, who is a long-time activist um, who has um, an interest in Irish republicanism and has also regularly kind of written on it. Um, he recently wrote a piece um, for Green Left titled Bloody Sunday um, 50 Years On um, and a symbol of ongoing injustice and has written for other left-wing publications slash Green Left and Irish Broad Left and among others. So, yeah, um, good morning, Stuart. Yeah, good morning. Okay, well, I guess to start off with the first kind of question, um, Bloody Sunday was um, a massacre on the 30th of January 1972, which involved British soldiers shooting 20, um, over 26 unarmed civilians during a protest march in the Bogside area of Derry. And, of course, it has been 50 years since that historical kind of event. And, and what can you, I guess, tell us about Bloody Sunday and its historical stink event? And what does it reveal about the evils of the British state and its continued occupation of Ireland? Uh, well, I mean, it, it, yeah, it was a very uh, decisive uh, event in what was known as the Troubles. I mean, on the day itself, it was a, a demonstration. It was an illegal demonstration. Uh, it had been banned by... Uh, the authorities that was protesting the policy of internment by which uh, British forces would just lift off the streets anyone who they accused of links to Republican um, groups, particularly the the IRA. Uh, and they, through that policy, I mean, almost 2,000 people have got, got picked up overwhelmingly from the, the nationalist community, uh, most with no links whatsoever, to armed groups and torture was very widespread. And so it was organised by the, the Northern Irish uh, Civil Rights Association, which had been, since 1966, pushing for uh, civil liberties and inequality in Northern Ireland, which is a very, very sectarian state in which the Catholic minority, uh, overwhelmingly nationalists, were faced extreme discrimination. Uh, and... They went ahead with the demonstration despite it being bad and the numbers of people vary, but there's probably at least 15,000 people uh, on the streets and towards the end of the march, there'd been some clashes with teenagers who you know, threw rocks and police threw and um, the, the army responded with uh, tear gas and, and the like and then uh, unexpectedly began firing and fired for, you know, 15 minutes pretty much straight. Uh, those who were shot t- were largely fleeing, many were shot from behind, uh, and others were shot whilst uh, tending to the wounded, and the result was 13, 13 died, uh, and a, a fourteen later, uh, uh, later died. Uh, and I mean, obviously this uh, event caused widespread uh, outrage uh, across across Ireland. Um, uh, when mentioned in my article, uh, it sparked the, the, the largest general strike by head of population uh, in, in Europe since 
World War Two occurred in the, the Republic of the Republic of Ireland, uh, the, during which the British embassy in Dublin got got burnt down, uh, and the response to this atrocity uh, of the British was immediately to uh, cover up and lie, uh, and I mean, it's sort of well known things like the um, the Widgery report, which I think began two days after the event uh, and took about ten weeks to complete it and completely exonerated the British soldiers and claimed that they accepted their, def- their defence, that, that, that it was self-defence, that they had, in fact, been been fired on, uh, which is a thorough, now, now completely discredited, discredited claim. But it's also important to note it's not just the official, you know, judicial response. You need to look at the response of the, of the British, uh, you know, establishment and... In general, if you look at, for example, the media reporting, and some of this is in, there was a Jacobin article about it, um, also published to mark the 50th anniversary that goes through the, the media response, right from the sort of more, you know, conservative papers, such as the Daily Telegraph, whose response is probably exactly what you'd expect, through to the Guardian, and the Guardian entirely blamed the demonstrators uh, as well, uh, you know, and essentially said they brought the shooting on, on themselves. Now, and I think the fact uh, that after the, the families for justice uh, and a, a solidarity you know, movement raising the issue of, of Bloody Sunday, they finally, the Seville inquiry that was began in, in 1998, by the time it finally... Um, Finished and was released in 2010. Completely obliterated the the slander that um, that soldiers had been fired on, and established that it was in fact an unprovoked massacre. Uh, and the British Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, even apologised. Uh, uh, nonetheless, there's still been no prosecution of any of the soldiers. There was one who was charged in the aftermath of that inquiry, and that uh, was dropped last year because they said that uh, you know, statements from 1972 couldn't be considered admissible anymore. Uh, yes. Uh, you mentioned in your article that um, there were some acts of uh, resistance or um, response from the Irish uh, to in response to the um, massacre. And now you already mentioned the general strike and the, the burning of the, the embassy in Dublin. Uh, could you give other examples of the um, Irish kind of the, the responses to the Bloody Sunday massacre on behalf of the Irish? Oh, look, in order to uh, understand this, it has to be under- I think it has to be understood as the events of Bloody Sunday, both you know the the fact that it was firing on a on a, an illegal demonstra- a large mass illegal demonstration. Um, and, and the nature of the atrocity have to be put have to be understood as one of the events, a very decisive event in a phase of uh, very violent oppression and and resistance itself. And it's important to, to place uh, Bloody Sunday as it, it was a turning point in an ongoing process of oppression and resistance occurring in occurring in Northern Ireland. So it... And the, the, the unit that committed it, the Parachute Regiment, I mean, they 
had previously been in uh, West Belfast in, when internment was first introduced in August of 1971, and they committed uh, a massacre in the, the working-class nationalist area of, Bell, of Bella Murphy, uh, where they set up a free fire zone for three days where they would shoot anything on the streets that moved, um, and they, that they killed 11 people. And again, many were shot. You know, there was case of a, a mother on the street trying to get her children inside, shot in the head. Uh, again, shot, you know, a priest was shot while trying, was killed while trying to, uh, to attend to someone else who'd been shot. Uh, and so it, it really has to be placed in, in, in that context. There had been the very fact that there were British soldiers and the very fact that a massacre like Bloody Sunday happened occurred after... Uh, well, six years, really, into the, the civil rights struggle uh, that began uh, and immediately faced extreme violence by the Northern Irish uh, authorities, by the, the Royal Ulster Confederacy, the police force, the B-specials, the sort of militarised auxiliary force and Protestant gangs. Uh, and that itself sparked huge resistance. It had to. I mean, if you understand the context of what was happening, uh, you saw pogroms against Catholics. You saw them being driven by, in their thousands from, from their homes, driven from jobs. And there was the largest forced movement of people anywhere in, since World War II, anywhere in Europe. Thousands of people fled into the, the, the largely Catholic areas and they had to defend them with um, barricades, petrol bombs and rocks. Uh, they created basically liberated zones, and they had to defend them constantly from violence. And, of course, that most famously that occurred in Derry, in the Battle of, Battle of the Bogside in 1969. They created the Free Derry Liberated Zone. And on Bloody Sunday, on that day in 1972, there were still places that the British Army were not safe to go. They would not, there were no-go zones for the British, for the British Army. Uh, and the British Army came in initially, uh, said that we're going to be peacekeepers. There's too much there's unrest going on. You know, the Catholics are under attack. And many in the Catholic community uh, initially supported the troops going there because they, they thought it would protect them from uh, the Royal Ulster Constabulary and these Protestant, um, yeah, Protestant gangs that were committing acts of constant acts of terror against them. Uh, and... To the, what happened on Bloody Sunday has to be understood as a response to resistance. It was, uh, the policy of internment was a response to resistance. Uh, and it was really an attempt to try and change the things on the ground in Derry so that it was, they were no longer, the British Army could go where they, where, where they wanted. And the most decisive thing about Bloody Sunday was that particularly when it came as a, an escalation of all this violence, which we saw then in Ballet Murphy and then in Derry, it was a complete militarisation of what had been a civil struggle, a civil rights struggle. There was no way forward for many in the nationalist community that they could see if we can't even march in the streets without getting shot dead. That the only way to respond to that uh, was the armed struggle that the provisional IRA and other armed groups were carrying out. So it had a, it had a very militarising effect on the entire... On the, on the entire struggle. Hmm. And yeah, I think that you present, that kind of like presents a kind of very good kind of summary, I guess, of, cause often there's, there's often this sort of one-sided kind of take, you know, that you often kind of hear 
from what kind of more sort of liberal sort of um, takes on the sort of um, Irish sort of struggle where, you know, there's often this sort of blanket sort of con- condonation of the violence of the RRA and it's never put into any sort of context. And I think you gave a kind of very good well, contextual expansion well, for that. You, you have to look seriously at a, in a sense of the policy of internment. I mean, they just go and pick up young working class men and women yeah, you know, and the story is repeated again and again uh, from the people who were interned. You know, young guys going, like, I was 18 years old, I wanted to get drunk, play football, you know, chase girls. I had no political thought in my head. They picked me up, they tortured me. I went out and the first thing I did was seek, seek the IRA recruiting sergeant. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it caused the, the mass support and for... Uh, for the IRA that existed and was the reason why they could never be defeated. Um, they, you know, all sides in that conflict committed um, crimes, uh, and that's acknowledged by um, the Republican movement today. Uh, hmm. But there's no question that the, the IRA enjoyed serious popular support in the nationalist communities because it was seen as their defence and the ones fighting for them against what had been a totally one-sided terror, of which Bloody Sunday is very emblematic. Hmm. And I guess you argue in your article, um, this goes into the next point, which is you argue in your article that the roots of the violence go back to the 1922 petition of Ireland. And I guess, just what can you tell us about that history? I guess for our listeners' information who may not be as conscious about that kind of historical kind of context. Yeah, well, definitely, because it was established when the, you know, the Irish... War of Independence, uh, when there was a treaty, the treaty that that ended that that that, that conflict gave well, it was initially home rule, but basically gave independence to most of Ireland. Um, you know, Thirty-two counties in Ireland, twenty-six uh, formed the Irish Free State, which became the Irish Republic. But the British sort of enforced on, and it's a very controversial thing in Irish history whether or not the the, the Irish side was right to accept the leadership was right to accept the treaty or not but the point is the british really you know uh really did what they could to force it on it uh and it carved out six counties in ulster but ulster's nine counties uh in in the north it's all ulster's ultimately nine counties they only took six and they did that in order to manufacture a protestant um majority over the catholic minority because the protestant population of and also tended to be more supportive of British rule, known as Unionists, and the Catholics were overwhelmingly uh, nationalist. And, and to establish that state, they did it as an extraordinarily sectarian state to such an extent uh, that when the architects, the architects of South African apartheid explicitly um, pointed to Northern Ireland as one of their models. Uh, and so it was extreme discrimination. You'd have factories, you know, thousands and thousands of works in these factories not a single one would be Catholic. There was a, a policy of you just don't hire Catholics. You know, so there was there was uh, extreme discrimination in housing, extreme discrimination in jobs, in education funding, in pretty much every measure, including democracy. There was very little democracy. So they, they gerrymandered the situations to basically deny one person one vote. Instead, it was tied up with property rights. You had to own the vote. You had to sort of own on your house. Uh, so the, the inequality in housing then also became a massive political inequality. And that was especially the case in a place like Derry, um, because Derry actually had a majority of Catholics, and yet 
they had no political power because the situation was rigged. They couldn't, you know, like, despite numerically being the majority, they could not, they did, yeah, didn't have enough electoral rights to actually have that reflected in the institutions. And that's what started, and the, the civil rights movement that started in the, the late 60s, from 66 on, explicitly um, modelled itself in the US civil rights movement, and, you know, they sung the same songs. You can see footage of them being, we shall... We shall overcome. And that was not a, a, a Republican movement. There were uh, Republicans in it. Uh, many in the nationalist community were, were Republicans, but it wasn't seeking a united Ireland. It was seeking um, democratic and civil rights within the existing state. And really, Bloody Sunday um, was the final nail in the coffin of that uh, for the nationalist community, that there's clearly no way forward uh, in, that, in that way. And it became, you know, both a, you know, like a Republican struggle, overwhelmingly. But, and, and then, of course, you had the, the armed, armed dimension of it, uh, due really to the nature of the occupation. So the British soldiers were there. That's what they were defending. They were defending um, this extreme, extremely unequal and oppressive society. And uh, final question. Um, it's... After 50 years, uh, you know, since Bloody Sunday, what's the significance of the event uh, when it comes to the movement for Irish republicanism today and um, that you make reference to in your article? Oh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it remains a very decisive, decisive event. Injustice um, and, uh, you know, the, the courage of the community and the courage of the families to keep pushing for justice. Um, and a part of its legacy, I think, I mean, it did change a lot of things, including the British shifted increasingly, because it was such, you know, very hard to defend internationally what happened. Uh, they tended to shift to a policy, to uh, collusion with paramilitaries, loyalist paramilitary death squads, really. Mm. And a lot of this is dirty work instead. And that, that included um, attacks on random Catholic families, like they tended to target middle class, respectable Catholics who had no Republican ties in order to make the point that all all Catholics uh, needed to understand their, their place. And they would often just wipe out entire families doing that. Um, I think that, that change, a lot of that changed the nature of the, of the struggle. I, mean, I think one of the important things when we look at 50 years on... Uh, was one of the decisive things in the Republican struggle that got to the stage of the Good Friday Agreement was the extent to which it was able to recover the political struggle, which really came around the prisoner struggle uh, in the late 70s and uh, into the 1981 hunger strike where 10, 10 Republican prisoners uh, died on hunger strike fighting for the principle that they, were they wanted political status, that we are political prisoners, we are not common criminals and the international support that that generated uh, exposing the British state and the courage of that I think really showed the depth of support uh, for the Republican movement and really showed that they couldn't be militarily defeated at the same time as the IRA could not itself militarily defeat the British and really lay the groundwork I think for a shift of political focus and a political strategy which has led us to the situation today where you have a Friday agreement um, being much of which has never been implemented and has been badly undermined in many ways, uh, you know, 
I guess Brexit is a major thing in, in undermining, but there's plenty of other things as well. So it's a very, very fragile... Uh, I mean, the Northern Irish Assembly is sitting where it didn't for a few years, um, but it's still under British rule, and that means things like the austerity that happens in Northern Ireland is implemented by the Northern Irish Assembly, but the budget comes from London. Uh, they have no control over their own budget. Uh, you can see with the Brexit situation that majority of Northern Ireland voted against Brexit, but they have to live with it and the very potentially quite dire consequences it has for Northern, Northern Ireland, both economically and politically. Uh, and that's led to a situation where, you know, there was growing support for uh, the question of Irish unification and Sinn Féin, uh, as a Republican party, is uh, pushing quite hard on the campaign for a referendum that's allowed under the Good Friday Agreement, which should be an all-Ireland all islands referendum on, on Irish unity. And I think the the fact that there's been no justice around things like Bloody Sunday feed very strongly into that. They can't even prosecute a single soldier uh, for blatant murder. That Even the British authorities now accept was blatant, unprovoked murder, and they can't even prosecute a single one. Uh, it really feeds very strongly into the argument when you connect it with everything else, including the underdevelopment of Northern Ireland, um, the poverty in Northern Ireland, that... Uh, the issues that led to the civil rights struggle and itself led to the troubles cannot be resolved without Irish unification, and there is a clear democratic way to achieve that. Hmm. All right. Well, we might have to um, we'll have to conclude that um, the interview on that note. Um, but we'd like to thank you very much, Stuart, um, for being on our program today. I think it's been a very kind of like good kind of history lesson, um, especially in terms of its um, the significance of Bloody Sunday for Irish republicanism today. And yeah, I hope um, I think yeah, um, I just recommend to our listeners that you can read um, Stuart's article on the Green Left website, which is titled "Bloody Sunday: Fifty Years On." On a symbol of ongoing injustice. But yeah, thanks again, Stuart. Sure, thank you. Alright, we we're just speaking to um, Stuart Monkton, um, who wrote, um, who recently wrote about um, the significance of Bloody Sunday, which was a massacre on the 30th of January 1972, when British soldiers, you know, openly shot on 26 unarmed civilians during a protest march. And of course, that protest march was about, you know, the, the, the generally ongoing kind of struggle for Irish, um, for justice, um, led by the Irish against, um, against the British. So, yeah, um, it was definitely, uh, very kind of informative kind of interview. And now, I guess at this point, um, I was thinking, I was thinking that we play a quick, I'll play a quick announcement. Maybe we might just take a bit of a breather and might play a bit of a thong before we get into our next interview for the program, which is going to be happening in five minutes. You're listening to Green Left Radio, 3CR, 855 AM. You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment, and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, you've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's 
and people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR. It is 7.40 a.m. and I thought that we would play um, a bit of a song from um, Banshee Land, Out of My Mind. Um, so we'll go play this for the next four minutes before moving on to our second interview of the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 a.m. Feel it 
Ah, apologies, listeners. We actually ended up playing Breathe In, Breathe Out by Thelma Plum um, because um, the song I was trying to play originally didn't seem to play. All right. Anyway, um, we're gonna um, just get a um, I'm just gonna play a quick announcement and then we'll get a go on to our next interview for the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio. This is Irene Bolger, former secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. All right, hello and welcome back to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. Um, we are joined by uh, Michaela uh, Pangeas, hopefully I pronounced that right, who's a member of Socialist Alliance and writes regularly for Green Left, um, and who recently wrote an article for Green Left responding to the Grace Tame incident, uh, where she accepted her Australian of the Year award for her advocacy against domestic violence and sexism, but refused to smile toward the Prime Minister, which has been, of course, a source of media backlash. Uh, welcome, Markella. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. All right. Um, so in the opening of your article, you state, since the 1990s, women in the West have been told we are emancipated, but the feminism... Uh, in quotations, which claims this is really, which claims this is really only concerned about the empowerment of some women and only in the context of capitalism. Uh, so can you elaborate about what you define as liberal feminism and why it's inadequate as a uh, feminist movement? Yeah, thanks for this question, I. So uh, what I'm talking about is the kind of feminism that has been uh, pushed by neoliberal capitalism since the 1990s. So this liberal feminism can be defined as a feminism that um, it seeks equality and emancipation for women, uh, but within the existing capitalist and bourgeois institutions and governments. So it does um, try to make some gains to women. So it does advocate for things, you know, like wage equality, quotas for women in parliament, um, but it's usually in the framework of integrating women into structures of power. So I think this is inadequate because it doesn't seek to transform society and it doesn't actually try to break down the capitalist system, which um, from my own perspective and from the socialist perspective is at the core of um, inequality and patriarchy currently. So liberal feminism is also inadequate because despite some of its gains for women, it has now, since the 1990s at least, uh, been distorted into an instrument of the capitalist ruling classes. Um, so feminist author Nancy Fraser actually writes about this and she describes the way in which liberal feminism uh, pushed for emancipation um, actually has been co-opted by the forces of neoliberalism and capitalism. And this means it's become a feminism for the 1%. Mm. 
and it pays lip service to equality, um, but by its very nature, it actually excludes most women. So it excludes women of colour, black women, um, First Nations women, poor women, disabled women, queer women, trans people. And within um, liberal feminism, the focus is on the individual woman's success within bourgeois institutions rather than building, you know, a mass movement to fight oppression. Hmm. And um, going into the, I guess, kind of the next question, which... um because I think you've given like a good sort of, you know, a good sort of overview around the kind of inadequacies of um, liberal feminism. But I guess going into kind of like the Grace Tame kind of situation, you know, Grace Tame is, you know, in some sense, you know, an example of, in some sense, a woman who has made it in some sense, like she has a prominent sort of profile and, and so on. And of course, there is, but the whole thing about her, I guess, kind of refusing to kind of smile toward, um, towards the Prime Minister, well, I guess, and also provoked, I guess, this very sort of strong kind of media response, but also um, invoked a very strong response from politicians. And I guess, what do you think this response tells us about everyday sexism within our society? Um, because, you know, this, um, at the same time that society is trying to tell us that... Um, you know, women have rights, etc. They seem to be not even like it when a prominent woman um, who has a lot of media um, profile is uh, makes some kind of stand against sexism. Yeah, I think that's a good question too. And you know, first up, it shows you know just how pervasive sexism is and how entrenched you know patriarchy is. Um, and you know, it also shows given that, you know, what you said about Grace Payne's status as, you know, a woman who's become very well-known and, uh, you know, has a platform, um, you know, there's huge double standards. So women in public life, like Payne, um, have different standards applied to them um, as opposed to men. So women in public life are meant to look good and smile and attack when they don't do this, and men are not held to the same standards. So we can think back to when Julia Gillard was Prime Minister and all the attacks on her appearance constantly and, you know, accusations that she was a witch and, you know, all this. Um, and then, you know, um, you can think back to there was a quite well, came relatively well-known photo of the Commissioner Kenneth Payne who didn't smile during a photo uh, with Treasurer Josh Frydenberg, and that was in the situation where he was handing over the report from the Banking Royal Commission. He didn't smile at all, and it was very awkward, but he didn't receive this kind of media and a frenzy from the right-wing conservatives. And, you know, the, the outrage from, you know, people like Prue Goward and, you know, other conservatives ruling elites, um, it's because she, she didn't behave as she was expected to as a woman, uh, particularly not as a su- successful woman in the media. And, you know, this is an everyday thing that a lot of women experience. I've experienced it, um, you know, not that I'm in public life, but, you know, you often get told, smile, sweetie, you know, just when we're going about our daily business. And, you know, this is all really just a, a form of trying to control women's bodies. Hmm. 
And some probably important context that you go into in your article as well around the the issue of uh, the media response to Grace Tame not smiling is the Prime Minister and the current coalition government and government in general's own track record when it comes to dealing with women's rights. Um, so could you elaborate a bit on that in terms of um, how that plays into the coverage and the response? Definitely. So Scott Morrison's track record is quite shocking, in my opinion. So time and time again, he will pay lip service to women's rights, um, but no action is actually taken. So I'll just give some examples. So it was actually, you know, Morrison and his government's decision not to adopt all the recommendations of the Sex Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins' report into sexual harassment in the workplace. It was also Morrison's government who abolished the family court and they merged it with the Federal Circuit Court and uh, women's and domestic violence advocacy groups have said this is going to make things a lot worse for women who've been... um, victims of domestic violence, for example. And, of course, um, we all know, you know, Morrison supported and protected former Attorney General Christian Porter, despite very credible rape allegations. And he only, you know, let uh, Christian Porter go to the backbench when he refused to say he was funding his court case. Uh, And Morrison, you know, also effectively tried to silence with me, Higgins. So, you know, he um, did have a hand in, in a decision that the, the independent body set up to look into sexual assault wouldn't actually look into the Higgins' rape complaint. And, you know, another thing, you know, he's made a series of very uh, inappropriate gaps, showing a complete lack of empathy towards women, you know, uh, most recently... Um, well, actually, last year, after the Women's March for Justice, he said it was a you know triumph of democracy that the women protesting were not met with bullets. Hmm. And I guess that gets into I guess the next kind of por- uh, important kind of question. I think we'll make this um, the kind of final kind of question is moving I guess beyond kind of um, liberal feminism and. You know, what would a feminist movement that takes up the concerns of all women look like? And I guess in terms of what you kind of conclude in your article, you, you know, we need to build, you know, a woman's movement that actually wipes the smirk off uh, Morrison's kind of face. Because, um, you know, his smug kind of, you know, his comments about, you know, how great democracy is because um, protesters weren't men bullets is just, you know, a classic example of the kind of smugness of of our of our kind of prime minister. Yeah, definitely, I agree that, and it's quite uh, you know offensive continually seeing that smugness as a woman, especially. I mean, and what it shows is that you know we actually do need to build a mass movement, and you know this is something that socialists have called for for a long time. Um, you know, there's. The point is that currently, without um, economic equality, um, you know, we can never have true gender equality within a capitalist system. And within the capitalist system itself, um, you can't really get 
what we need, which is emancipation for everyone and liberation for everyone. So this is obviously not a quick fix. Um, you know, as we've seen, people like Scott Morrison, they don't, they don't want to make those changes because it will mean that they will not be able to hold on to their power. Um, so, you know, what I think we need, and, and this is not just me saying this, a lot of people are saying this, is that, you know, you need a mass women's movement which mobilises all women. Um, it it mobilises all women, including marginalised groups and LGBTIQ plus people. And alliances must be built between different oppressed groups. And instead of focusing on, you know, individual women getting success, um, within society, we need to focus on building, you know, a society where all women um, can thrive and have the opportunity for success and building safe, inclusive communities. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Markella. And um, that is going to have to be the end of the interview for time reasons. But uh, if people want to, and they should, Go check out your interview, your um, article, If Looks Could Kill, um, on the uh, Greenleft website, greenleft.org.au, If Looks Could Kill. Um, thanks very much. Thanks, Zoe, and thanks, Jacob, and thanks for having me on this morning. Yeah, thank you very much, Michaela. All right. Um, so we'll just um, we'll just have an interview with Michaela, a member of Socialist Alliance, who, yeah, as Ari kind of mentioned, just recently wrote an article, "If Looks Could Kill," um, responding to this, you know, the whole um, the whole issue around um, surroundings, um, Gra- um, Grace Tame, and the kind of subsequent media kind of backlash. And I thought that you know one of the kind of significant things, and I guess why we sort of had this interview, is it did kind of raise this sort of broader discussion around women's rights and feminism, and especially kind of put a lot of attention on you know the Morrison's kind of own failings. And in fact, we can um, one thing to note, um, and more importantly, is on the twenty seventh of which I think it's the twenty seventh of February. Uh, that's a Sunday, isn't it? I'm not sure. Well, I've got to, I've got to just double check <laughs> this. Um, uh, but I'm pretty sure. Yeah, on the 27th of February, on a mm. Sunday, the last it would be the last Sunday of February, the March for Justice, which organised those massive sort of um, women's rights rallies that happened last year around March, um, in response to all the kind of allegations at the um, against against um, against the the Parliament House, and. They they basically are calling for another protest um, on the 27th of February, and it's going to be a national day of auction, and we have a protest in Melbourne, Geelong, or across the country. So definitely think that in terms of like um, this, that protest will be the kind of next kind of big thing in terms of making a stand against um, for women's rights. All right, I'll just go play um, a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio. I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe... The number is 94198377. You've been listening to the same. You could never understand. 
All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and it is around 8.02 a.m., and it is just about time for the Green Left Activist Calendar. Now, these are a number of events that are going to be, that are coming up in the coming weeks. And so on Friday, well, today at 4.30 p.m., there's going to be an online forum, which is um, titled um, Imperialism and Its Agents Must Be Destroyed, Australian Workers and Anti-Colonialism in the 20." 20th century. Now, this is a um, this is online event um, being organised by I don't know who's sort of organising it, um, but I'll go put up the the event is happening at 4:30 p.m. 4:30 uh, p.m. at um, yeah an online and it can be registered for. And I'll put the registration link up on the website. And then on Saturday the 5th of um, of February, there's going to be an online rally, Tamil Oppression Day, at 6 p.m. over Zoom. And then on Sunday, February the 6th, is going to be the Midsummer Pride March at 11 a.m. at Fitzroy Street in St Kilda. And then on Wednesday, February the 9th, Renters and Housing Union are all, um, Renters and, um, Housing Union, Rahu, are organising a housing justice after lockdown at 5.30 kind of p.m. And yeah, you can, if you look up on Facebook, on the Rahu's um, Facebook page, you can find the details there. And then on Friday, February the 11th, there's a public forum, COVID-19 Disaster, Workers Fight Back, and that's going to be happening at 6.30 p.m. at the MUA Hall, 46 Island Street, West Melbourne, and it's also going to be happening online. And you can find um, all the details for that event if you look at the Green Left um, website. Um, and then on, the, on Wednesday, February the 16th, there's going to be an online book launch, Crimes Against Nature, at 6.30pm. And then on Thursday, February the 17th, there's going to be a public forum, Terry um, Lely, um, The Politics of Permaculture, at 5.30pm with drinks at 5pm at the New International Bookshop, Strades Hall 54, Victoria Street in Carlton South. And then on Saturday, um, um February 20th, there's going to be a volunteers um, meeting, Socialist Alliance election campaign. Socialist Alliance is standing Sue Bolton in the seat of wheels and Felix Dance and Angela Carr in the Senate. Hear from the candidates and find out how you can get involved in the campaign. Lunch and drinks available. Lunch will be halal with vegan options available at 12.30pm at the Harry Atchison and Arts and Crafts Centre, Lake Grove, Coburg Lakes Reserve. And then on Sunday, February the 20th, 7th, there's going to be a rally, March for Justice, details to be announced. And then on Sunday, March the 5th, there's going to be a Free the Refugees rally organised by Refugee Action Collective at 2pm at the State Library in Swanson Street in the city. But yeah, um, that's... um that's that's got, um, pretty much it, I guess, in terms of events. Um, given that we have some time around before our kind of third interview, I thought we'll play, yeah, we'll, we'll mix things up again and play another song for our listeners. And so I was, I was thinking that we would play Poetry by Text by Alex Guy. You're listening to Green Left Radio. <laughs>
All right, you're just listening to Poetry by Text by Alex Skye. And now I'll just go play a quick few announcements and get ready for our third and final interview for the program. 
You are listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. The current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterized by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs. And students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, it has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Um, apologies, um, listeners. We are trying to get our third guest. Um, we were intending to interview a member of the Australian Kurdish community, um, basically in response to um, Turkey's aerial genocide against the Kurds. In fact, on February the 1st at 10pm, the Turkish Air Force essentially carried out a systematic bombing campaign against civilian areas throughout Kurdistan. So we're going to be having a bit of a we're going to have a bit of a discussion. That I'll just give it. Give, I'll play one announcement, give it one more shot, um, and we'll kind of see how we go. But yeah, it just um, seems to, um, we're not, we don't appear to be able to get on to our guests at this point. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986, and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting, and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. So, yeah, it appears we can't um, get on to our guests, but 
yeah, well, hopefully we can cover it um, later. But yeah, it was just basically we're going to be giving a bit of an update on Turkey's sort of latest sort of genocide against the Kurds and, you know, what we can do to stand up and support the Kurdish solidarity um, struggle. There mm. is actually a petition um, about this actually, um, this issue. And in fact, I will send it around on the Green Left Radio social media kind of page. Um, so yeah, listeners can have a look and also attach it to kind of the podcast because we're intending to kind of have a discussion. Anyway, maybe for the remaining kind of part of the program, um, we can cover some news from the pages of Green Left. And in fact, there has been kind of a number of news, you know, giving the kind of updates on the latest kind of sh- struggles against injustice and fight for the kind of better world. Um, yeah, I'll pass it on to kind of Ari. Uh, sure. So um, first one I think we'll have a look at uh, is... The Maritime Union Fights to Keep Enterprise Agreements, um, written by Jim McElroy for Green Left Radio. Um, his, so this article uh, is talking about the Maritime Union of Australia and the International Transport Federation uh, criticised moves by ports operator Patrick Terminals uh, to cancel the enterprise agreement with its employees and replace it with basic award rates. Um, this would lead, according to the MEOA and ITF, uh, this would lead to a 50% wage cut for about a thousand people, a uh, thousand wharfies in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, and Fremantle, and it would also end overtime and night shift provisions and limit workers to 35 hours for um, per work week. So this would end Patrick Terminal's 24/7 surge in operations, and <clears throat> excuse me, and would severely. Uh, reduce the the supply chain capacity that's already having problems. But uh, the MUA Sydney branch secretary, Paul Keating, told Green Left that uh, Patrick Terminal's move would mean reversing gains made over more than 30 years of struggle. So if the dispute goes ahead, it would be a disaster for the waterfront industry and other stevedoring companies would not be able to pick up the slack. Keating said that the MUA is seeking solidarity from unions around the world and is receiving broad support. Our members are ready for a fight if Patrick goes ahead with his with its plans, he said. And yeah, so aside from the the obvious uh, erosion of the working conditions and uh, the wage cuts, the hour cuts, that sort of thing, it would, um, as I mentioned and is, is discussed in the article, it would also significantly deteriorate the, um, the port's ability uh, to keep up with the supply chain problems. It would reduce working hours and it would uh, reduce the amount of work done that seems to be needed at the moment with um, a lot of people out with COVID and all of the supply chain issues related to that in general. But, of course, the more important is a possible up to 50% pay cut for over a 1,000 people. Um, so it's um, let's say it's uh, a bad move on me- multiple fronts is the way I would summarize it. Hmm. Well, that's um, it's definitely good to kind of hear about some of that um, about kind of workers kind of struggle in this kind of um, st- in, in terms of um, what, what what what's going on right now. And I guess the next kind of article I kind of want to talk about is. There was actually, uh, there was actually New South Wales nurses and midwives actually pro, um, organised a protest against unsustainable conditions. And Riv Miley reports here from, you know, from Western Sydney that 
um, about about 50 nurses and midwives from Liverpool Hospital used their lunch break on January 27th to protest understaffing, which is leading to extreme strain and unsafe work conditions. The health workers carried... Um, handwritten placards with the words public health system in crisis and fatigued, worn out, exhausted, burnout. Um, they chanted, enough is enough, better staffing now. At a star- statewide meeting of the New South Wales um, and Midwives Association a week before, a majority of delegates voted to condemn the state government's handling of the pandemic. Nurses and midwives at Westmead Hospital held a similar protest on January 19th. To relieve um, the unsustainable pressure on workers, the New South Wales NMA is demanding the government to introduce a COVID-19 allowance for healthcare workers, allow nurses and midwives to access special leave when COVID-19 positive, and commit to implementing shift-by-shift ratios to ensure safe staffing levels. You know, well before the pand, um, well before the pandemic, and I think this is kind of like well before the pandemic. It's kind of, kind of quite. I think it's quite an important point. Nurses and midwives had been working understaffed and unsupported. Um, Shay um, Kandish, acting general secretary of the NS. WMNA said this Omicron wave has peak, peak um, this Omicron peak has relied on our members working excessive overtime to keep hospitals running and staff are burning out. She said the Premier must urgently commit to staffing improvements through safer nurse to patient ratios to ensure most more resilience in the healthcare system. This isn't confined to one or two hospitals, Candice said. Nurses and midwives are well past the breaking point. The current crisis of constant overtime and huge workloads will see many burn out and leave, meaning we will be in an even weaker position when the next wave hits. And so... And then, of course, the, N, um, the New South Wales MNA released the results of a survey that found 60% of intensive care unit staff are considering leaving because of the additional work strain during the pandemic. Members are telling us that they'll get through this crisis and then that's it. NSW MNA Acting General um, Secretary told AAP on January 26th. And, you know, a lot, and in co- the concluding sort of point is, you know, a lot are saying three to five, um, he is tops. They can't see themselves giving anything more than that. He said if Premier Dominic Perret really worked, thankful for the work of health professionals, he would be introducing, he would have introduced safer staffing, but there's no action. There's just words and our members are increasingly frustrated by it. So yeah, that's just, um, a bit of a kind of highlight. And I guess, I mean, um, probably, I guess the kind of positive, uh, situation right now is, I mean, um, despite, and, and I don't want to minimise any of the kind of deaths that have been occurring in the past week, but it's like probably one of the positive things is it does appear that the COVID-19 wave, you know, is peaking. Cases are going down and hospitalizations going down. But it's like in the context of what we just kind of spoke about before, it's completely, you know, it just shows how disinterested um, the government is in serving the interests of ordinary people where it's like... Mm. Basically, they see, they just see, they just want to push healthcare workers to the brink of exhaustion every time there's like a kind of, every time there's some exponential kind of increase in COVID cases. And it's just Mm. completely like, you know. Yeah ridiculous in, in a lot of ways yeah and we can definitely expect the government to not learn from this um because that would cost them more money because the obvious solution is pay healthcare workers better and hire so that more people will want to work there and to reinstate ratios and that sort of thing but that 
conservative government's not going to do that, of course, because that would be less profit and more socialization of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and more socialization of like the problems as opposed to kind of individualization of them. I don't know if I put that very well. Oh, I think but, that, that that's a good way of kind of putting it up because yeah. basically they, in, in, in terms of this whole COVID-19 pandemic, they're just wanting to push mm. everything onto the individual, but they're not willing to actually do anything in terms of actually helping people get through. Yeah. Um, they're not willing to increase, massively increase funding for healthcare. In fact, the reality is, I mean, in terms of like, as socialists and as left-wing people kind of demanding increase in public health, obviously we understand that you can't increase the public health system overnight, but it would be good to yeah. see signs that yeah, the government exactly. is actually committed to doing something. Yeah, you can't increase it overnight, but they have also had a bit over two years, or around two years, to work on increasing it slowly. And, yeah, as you said, no yeah. signs of them trying to do that. Yeah, like I've never seen... Uh, you know, for all the press conferences that we got from Scott Morrison throughout mm. this entire pandemic, I've never seen a single press conference where he goes, okay, all right, we know that Australians have been for a lot with this pandemic. Here's what we're going to do so we can avoid this disaster again. We're going to commit to increasing our public health care system. Mm. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to create all these incentives for, for people to come health professionals and nurses and yeah. and so on. No, I've never seen any of that. It's just been... Well, I think it was announced recently that they're doing something like giving uh, two $400 bonuses to aged care workers or something. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's one, that's one of the classic kind yeah, of examples. exactly. And it's like uh, that... What they, what people need is pay increases and ratios reinstated in terms of the, you know, healthcare workers to patient ratio. And there are all these things that need to be reinstated, but it's like, no, if we just give them a couple bucks, they'll stop complaining, right? Yeah. And it's like, and I guess another, another element of as well is, it's like the bon the bonus that they're getting is not actually a proper compensation yeah. for what they've been through. And it's also like, one of the kind of one of the sort of points as well that came just came out of that article is, you know, prior to COVID, the healthcare system was already struggling. Yeah. So it's like, if COVID isn't some kind of wake up call for the inadequacy of our public health system, mm. what is going to be the wake up call? Yeah, and not even just the public health system. You know, as we're seeing with the kind of at this point fairly broad supply shortages and stuff. The method of um, kind of keeping the minimum necessary uh, supplies in, especially like grocery stores and stuff, that's a failure that doesn't keep up with need and it can't account for supply shortages. And same with the, the healthcare system is, like you said, it was already struggling and it's sort of by design that it can barely, the social systems or like um, utility uh, like systems that people need in general. It's sort of by design that they can just barely keep up with demand so that the absolute minimum cost uh, is expended on them, right? And then you see stuff like this where they start to, where these all these systems and all these businesses and industries start to collapse as soon as there's additional strain put on them. And it's like, I don't, I don't mean to uh, consistently be a pessimist, but... Uh, a lot of people uh, have predicted that this sort of event, like the, the COVID pandemic in general, that these sorts of events might get more um, more frequent uh, due to global warming and increased uh, 
various like increased bacteria production in warmer waters and like increased interaction between people and animals and stuff. And if we're not prepared to invest, I mean, for one, if we're not prepared to invest in trying to slow down global warming or stop our emissions, but if for two, we're not prepared to invest in future proofing these industries that are failing, um, due to this increased stress, then it's just going to happen again next time, <laughs> and there will probably be a next time. Mm. And, uh, and I think, I think that what this kind of shows is capitalism's increasingly inability to serve the interests of ordinary people. Mm. It is failing consistently to kind of adapt to any sort of crisis. And in fact, yeah. when it comes to this crisis, the whole I think the whole general tenure of the COVID-19 pandemic right now at this current stage, given the advances that have been made with mass vaccination, mm. although most of the global South still don't have vaccines, I think we can't, um, we can't lose sight of that. Yeah. But it's like, you know, really what the, gov- the government just continually wants to put the cost of, the pan- of dealing with the pandemic onto us mm. and they're not willing to actually invest. Like they don't care if, um, if you get sick and potentially die. It's all just like, you know, it's all about, it's all just left to kind of like the individual just get vaccinated, etc. Yeah. And that's all. That's all you have to do. You don't have to. Or, although, to the credit, I do respect that they still manage the testing infrastructure and all that. But you know, there's so much they could be doing. Mm. And I guess you know, um, going into the kind of issue of climate change in the future, um, just like you know, looking like you know, we're, this is the new normal with um, with you know the fact that we have to, we're we're living with COVID right now. That's a kind of new normal. But then. The new normal that's going to be coming is we're going to be living with cl- the impacts of climate change, and mm. just like, uh, just like how um, COVID, most of the world, the capitalist governments are not actually prepared for for the impending kind of impacts of climate change. Yeah, and you know there's going to be, no- and in fact, all the action that they're kind of likely going to take in terms of climate action is probably going to be way too late at the yeah. capitalist governments, and of course that's why, you know. That brings a kind of the importance, um, good way of kind of concluding the program. That brings kind of the importance of programs like Green Left Radio and Green Left, you know, to kind of raise the case for building, um, a kind of people's movement, a, a movement of the press that can actually challenge the power of the capitalist class and actually implement the, the political change that we, that we actually need, especially in terms of addressing climate change yeah, and the COVID-19 sure. pandemic. Yeah. And you can, uh, listener, you can support us by going to greenleft.org.au slash support, I believe. Um, and you can sign up for as little as $5 a month to get the uh, digital edition free and, you know, received updates from Green Left. And you can sign up to the activist calendar and that sort of thing to hear about events going on around Melbourne in particular. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, like to um, thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. And, yeah, stay tuned for... I think that the the next um, there's going to be a replay of Earth Matters following after this, and yeah, stay tuned for next week where we'll cover more activism and all the latest um, of in terms of struggles against injustice and fighting for a better world. You're listening to Green Left Radio, eight five five AM. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Have a good day. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise you workers from your slumbers. Arise you prisoners of want. 
for reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant Away with all your superstitions Serve all masses arise We'll change henceforth the old tradition And spurn the dust to win the prize That's right, the commies are back Reds underneath your beds and that crap